welcome to What's Killing My Kale. This is a podcast from University of Minnesota Extension, all about integrated pest management tactics for vegetable and fruit producers. I'm Annie Claude, and I'm an Extension educator here for fruit and vegetable production. And I'm Natalie Hoytel, an Extension educator with the Pesticide Safety and Environmental Education team. Each week, we'll talk with a different farmer or researcher about the specific pest issues they're dealing with and the techniques that they're using to manage those pests. Today, I am here with Christise Moderman, and she is a fairly new extension educator at the University of Minnesota, focusing on manure management. Christise, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Can you explain a little bit more what your position is before we get started? So, like you said, I'm an extension educator with the University of Minnesota Extension. Um, I am part of the crops nutrient management team, and I focus and specialize on manure management. Uh, and specifically, um, you know, manure management, nutrient management for crops. So, uh, why do you think manure is uh, important for fruits and vegetables, and um, why do you think it's important to talk about this? Well, um, manure is a great source of nutrients. It's got all the major ones, you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, but it also provides all of the micronutrients that are required for plant growth. Um, and then on top of that, it also brings a lot of organic matter to the soil, which leads to better soil health. Um, and then you get things like better water holding capacity and soil structure. And then the microbes and earthworms in the soil too, um, they also get a boost from manure. And I mean, so if you've got access to manure, it can be pretty economical as well. Because if you raise livestock, you need to get rid of the manure anyway. And mm -hmm. applying it to a proper pasture land does that, and it's also helping fertilize. So two birds with one stone, kind of. Um, and I don't mm -hmm. like to look at manure and commercial fertilizer as an either-or thing. Um, often they can be used together. You know, one of the biggest limitations of manure is that the nutrient ratios are fixed. So you have a certain amount of nitrogen, a certain amount of phosphorus, et cetera. So if you need to make up some nitrogen, um, for example, you could always apply that with commercial fertilizer. All right. And so I know that the basis of this podcast is we're going to talk about uh, different pest issues that have to do with manure, like weed seeds, and uh, potentially we might touch on some disease topics too with manure. But um, the reason we're doing a little background here is because for a lot of fruit and vegetable growers, manure might not be something that they do regularly. Um, might be something that fruit and vegetable growers are interested in doing, but don't really, you know, know the basics of how to get started with this. I know that you have some resources on the university extension website uh, having to do with manure basics, and so uh, we can share those on the webpage where this podcast is posted. But can you give a little background on um, how growers? often access manure and how they figure out how much to apply, just to kind of set the stage for this. Where is this manure usually coming from? Well, um, sometimes growers, you know, are also livestock producers. You have a very small livestock operation, you know, <laughs> all animals poop. <laughs> but, yeah. um, even if you don't have access to manure um, on your own farm, there are people that are willing to sell it. Um, my parents only grow corn and soybeans. They've got no livestock, but they buy all their turkey manure from a neighboring farm to supply, and they do that once every three years, and they um, that's worked out really great for them. Um, and a livestock operations, some of them are looking to sell their manure to get rid of it because they don't have enough land to spread it on. Um, I've even seen 
um, online ads like on Craigslist <laughs> selling their manure, <laughs> saying, come on by with the pickup, you know, and we'll fill your back of the pickup with manure and uh, that'll be $20 and you're on. <laughs> um, um, but it, and if you're a fruit vegetable farmer and you've never used manure before, I mean, it's, it's a totally viable thing. Um, my advice for a first-time application um, would be to send some of it to a testing lab. Mm-hmm. You know exactly what nutrients you've got. Um, and then also send in soil samples so you know what you need. And that way, when you calculate the application rates, you're as accurate as possible. Um, my other piece of advice for a new manure user would be don't use it on the whole field right away. <laughs> yeah. Do a small for- portion of the field um, until you've got it down. Um, I once saw a farmer apply manure way too thick, and then he had emergence problems, not necessarily from any nutrient problem, but just that the plant had to grow through all that thick manure. So there are a couple challenges. So just start small. Think small. Okay. Good advice. And how many weeks left this season do you think people have to apply manure? Um, Or is it too late? (laughs) That really depends on the ground temperature. We've had some really cold um, temperatures lately. I would say last year you would have a a longer window because once the ground freezes, you don't want to apply manure to frozen ground because that increases your runoff risk. Because you want the manure to be able to get into the soil. Um, and certainly don't apply it on top of snow because when that snow melts, it's all that manure is all going with the snow. Um, but the thing is, with manure, you also want to try to apply when the ground is um, 50 degrees Fahrenheit or less. That'll reduce your risk of, say, um, losing that um, the nitrogen in the manure through um, processes um, like nitrification, where the nitrogen turns into nitrate and leaches down through the soil with the water. That process happens um, through microbes and stuff at temperatures greater than 50 degrees. So if you wait until your soil is cooler, um, those um, chemical and microbial processes in the soil will either be really slow or not happen, um, and that will also reduce your risk of losing nitrogen to gas. Okay. Um, It'll stay put, especially for fall applications when there's not going to be a crop using it right away. Okay. And there are kind of two different types of manure, right? I mean, there's raw manure and then there's composted manure. Right. For a small fruit and vegetable operation, maybe somebody who's never tried applying manure before or wants to start scaling it up, what are your recommendations for that? Like, what are the differences between using an, an aged manure and a compost? Okay, so um, I want to make clear that aged manure is not composted manure. <laughs> There's some people that believe that, and just making a pile and letting it sit for long periods doesn't create the right conditions um, for the manure to compost. So, composting manure is an aerobic process, meaning it requires oxygen, and that generates heat within the compost pile. And that heat, along with microbial activity, um, works to break down organic matter in the manure, which um, includes like the bedding and such. And that makes it into a product that's high in organic matter. And in the end, it kind of resembles, resembles soil. It um, doesn't have that icky factor anymore. It smells better, earthier. Um, it even kind of looks like soil. Um, so. If you're going to turn aged manure or any manure into compost, it takes a little bit of management and some time and labor um, costs there. But 
Um, so you need to turn the compost pile to get oxygen inside, and then you need to monitor those temperatures with a temperature probe to tell when to turn the pile next. Um, like in a compost pile, the right internal temperature, what they consider optimal, is about 130 to 150 degrees Fahrenheit. And when that gets up to that upper limit, around 150 or maybe even a little higher, that's the time to turn the compost. Um, and that brings the temperature back down, because if it gets too hot, those microbes in there that are doing you know, the majority of your work, they'll start to die. Um, and then you also need to monitor moisture. You want what they call the damp rag level of moisture. So when you grab a chunk of your compost and squeeze it, you should hold its shape but you shouldn't have water wringing out of it, no water dripping out, um, and it shouldn't crumble apart into dust. Mm, okay. This is all really good advice. <laughs> and I'm glad we're talking about the composting topic because that really gets into pest control too, right? I mean, we talk a lot about how you need to heat compost piles to certain temperatures in order to kill weed seeds and to kill uh, diseases as well. So do you feel like that also kind of transfers over not to just um, vegetable compost, but manure, compost and manure as well? Yeah. Um, using compost and manure has a lot of benefits over raw manure as well. Um, for example, raw manure is quite bulky and I mean it only really ever has 10% total nutrient content by weight and hauling around all that extra stuff that's in the manure can be costly. Mm. Um, so composting the manure reduces overall volume by 50 to 60 percent. So it's a lot more compact without losing a lot of the nutrients, and so um, it ends up being cheaper to haul. Also, like I said, it's a lot less smelly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> neighbors that are sensitive to smell and might be offended by the odor of raw manure, um, compost and more manure has that soil smell. Um, and it's also got more stable nitrogen forms in the raw manure. So um, I mentioned that there, you know, there's two kinds of nitrogen in manure. There's a stable organic one, and then there's the unstable one that gets lost in the water and the atmosphere of the gas. Um, composted manure mostly has that stable form that'll stay put, so it's considered more of a slow re slow it's considered more of a slow release fertilizer. Um, and then, like I know we're going to get to talking about um, composting manure, also reduces the weed seeds and pathogens. Um, which we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So starting to get kind of on the pest topic now. You mentioned the weed seeds. Um, what are some of the what are some of the pest considerations to think about when applying manure? Yeah. So it's not all rainbows and butterflies when it comes no? to applying <laughs> I might be the only person to use rainbows and butterflies to describe manure. Um, <laughs> Got to uh, be one of you. Yeah, there's some inherent risks with that. Um, you need to be mindful of nutrient pollution from runoff. Um, and that, of course, is something that comes with the territory of all fertilizer, not just manure. Um, and you can combat that by, you know, applying on snow or frozen ground um, and incorporating the manure into the soil as soon as um, possible after application. Um, and then there's that drawback of all the other stuff that comes along with that manure when you apply it, like weed seeds, pathogens, um, those sorts of things. How does manure spread weed seeds? Can you talk about the process here? 
Yeah, so there's a couple of ways. Um, if you've got a poorly managed manure um, or compost pile with a bunch of weeds growing in them, I mean, you, don't, you don't kill or pull those weeds, those will end up in the manure. But um, probably the most common way is right through the animal. So forages, grains, um, even pelletized feed can carry weed seeds. Um, plants, you know, over the centuries <laughs> have adapted many ways to disperse their seeds over an area. You know, like dandelions have the tufts that get carried in the wind. Cockleburrs um, seem to get entangled in my dog's fur all the time. Um, and this this audience probably knows better than most of, you know, a lot of the fleshy fruits adapted to spread their seeds through an animal. You know, animal eats the seed, especially the cow goes and eats weed seed <laughs> um, and poops it out somewhere else and that um, spreads the seed. It's estimated that the migration of velvet leaf northward um, into Minnesota and Wisconsin was due to feed grains brought from um, New York that were contaminated with weed seeds. And this happened back in the 1970s. And so um, they were spread through manure and the feed grains that the livestock ate. Um, now, of course, not all plant seeds are adapted to survive the digestive system like that. And not all digestive systems are cre created equal when it comes to killing weed seeds. So it's not, you know, 100% of the seeds that enter an animal's digestive system aren't going to survive, um, but it, it, it can end up being a significant problem. Okay. Do you know of any of the species that are more or less likely to survive through manure? Through digestion? So in general, grass seeds are killed um, in the digestive tract a lot more easily than mm. broad leaves. Um, and then the hard-seeded broad leaves um, are the hardest to kill, like velvet leaf, field bindweed, common lamb's quarter. Those um, can be hard to ki kill by the digestive system. Okay. And then, uh, is it is the problem worse for some species of livestock than others? Yeah, it can be. So there was a study done in Nebraska that found that chickens and poultry are the best at killing weed seeds. Interesting. Um, only 2% of the weed seeds fed to them were recovered in the manure, um, where they found 11% in the horse and sheep, 25% in hogs and cattle. Now, that's the weed seeds um, found, the ones that ended up germinating and being viable. Um, the chickens only had 1%, and the rest had up to 10%. So hmm. I learned this. It kind of, uh, <laughs> it's really interesting because, if you were to ask me out of the blue, I would have assumed that, you know, the cow with four stomachs would be, a, you know, one of the best at um, killing weed seeds, but it ends up being one of the worst. And the gizzard of the bird, um, like chickens and other poultry, does a pretty good job of killing the weed seeds. Hmm. Um, really oh, another thing with the interesting about the chicken gizzard, though, is that seeds that... Um, kind of need a scarification or um, a bit of scratching to help them germinate, ended up germinating at a higher rate when they went through a chicken system because the gizzard scratched them enough to make them imbibe water easier and germinate. So mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. for some of them, it actually increased the amount that germinated. That's fascinating. Makes sense. But in general, then you're saying for most weed seeds, if you apply chicken or other poultry manure, there's less of a chance of, of spreading weed seeds that way than with something like a cattle manure, right? 
Yes, correct. Okay. All right. Very interesting. And is this a big problem? I mean, um, how big of an issue is this? And I'm, I'm just wondering about, um, like, if a fruit or vegetable farmer is interested in using manure on their field and uh, they're thinking about what manure to buy and where to source it from, is this a big enough problem that they should be talking to their supplier about um, what those uh, livestock are fed and um, what the, the pasture or the feed practices are like to try to minimize the amount of weeds that could be getting into that manure? Or is that a little, you know, is that a little too much to have to think about? Well, it can definitely be a significant problem, um, especially since the nutrients in that manure will feed the weed seeds right away, you know, maybe even before it, you know, helps the plants the crop right. is growing, um, and the weed seed quantities can vary greatly between farms, kind of depending on um, how well they're managed. Um, one study showed that um, one farm had up to 400,000 weed seeds per ton of manure. Um, oh, wow. the, average was, the average was about 75,000, which, I mean, to put that in perspective, if you're applying four tons of manure per acre, that would add up to 300,000 weed seeds per acre. <laughs> All of those might not be viable, but... They might germinate, you know, the following year or two years down the road. So it can certainly add up to be a big problem. Um, for the livestock producer, um, honestly, the best way to deal with it is at the source, the feed, um, using good pasture management tactics, not overgrazing, keeping weed populations low. Um, and then if you can't manage the part that goes into the animal, you can still manage what comes out, and that's um, where composting comes in there. There was a study done in California that showed that compost and manure, on average, reduced weed seeds by 20%. Okay. Um, and it's the heat generated inside the compost pile that does most of the killing of the seeds. But it kind of needs to be the right temperature. So at just 120 degrees for three days, we'll kill barnyard grass, pigweeds, and cocha, um, and most of the grasses. Um, remember that 130 to 150 is considered optimal for composting. Um, but it takes temps of over 160 degrees for three days to kill harder things like bindweed and velvet leaf. Um, some of the compost used to fertilize lawns or nurseries or kind of used on the commercial scale are usually heated to um, 180 degrees or over just to make sure they kill all the weed seeds. Um, and moisture is also important for killing the weed seeds in your compost. Um, you'll be far less effective if the moisture is below 35%. Um, and the optimum is considered 50 to 60 percent. So I mean, you should be above 35 percent moisture anyway. Do you have some tips for keeping that moisture to the percentage that it's supposed to be and also for keeping the whole pile at that uh, temperature for three days? I mean, those are some pretty precise numbers. And I know, you know, there are um, those thermometers that you can actually put into the middle of the compost pile. but how can you really make sure that that moisture content is ideal? Yeah, so those moisture or those those temperature probes are they're pretty much like a giant meat thermometer. They're um, long. You can purchase them and just you know stick it down into the compost pile and tell you where you're at. And if you're mixing your um, when you turn your compost pile when you're mixing it adequately, that that moisture should be dispersing throughout to have a you know uniform moisture. Um, luckily in Minnesota we're not a um, you know super we don't have a super wet 
climate. And so um, while it can help to put tarps over a manure pile or, you know, put it under a roof, that's generally not necessary all the time in Minnesota. Um, you might even have to water it, you know, um, <laughs> water your compost pile to keep it at the right moisture yeah. content. Okay. So to measure the moisture content, is there an easy way to do that? Um, just with the, I mean, you can get the fancy, you know, tensiometers that tell you moisture content. Um, it's just another instrument to buy. Or you can just do that squeeze test where you just take a clump of it and if it doesn't fall apart in your hand and if it, you're not wringing out water, then you're about right. Okay. And on to another question. We kind of touched on this earlier, but I think there's a little more detail uh, that we wanted to talk about here. So when purchasing or acquiring manure um, from a livestock producer, what can the fruit or vegetable farmer do to be able to tell if that manure is uh, going to cause issues for weed seeds? Well, that can be kind of tough. There's no, you can't send your manure or compost to a testing lab and there's no real test that can be done to see total viable seeds in the manure besides what those studies did where they took chunks of the compost or manure and you know put them in weed free soil and just you know see what germinates um, but it takes possible. time though <laughs> yeah that is yeah. a time consuming thing um, so if possible um, learn about the feed that the livestock was fed if you know your source if you know the livestock farmer where you're getting your manure um, what do their pastures look like, you know, in their hayland? If it's full of weeds, the manure from the animals that eat that will probably be more likely to carry weed seeds. But even if you don't know what was fed to the livestock, there's still something you can do to reduce the weed seed viability um, at field application time. And that is to um, incorporate your manure into the soil after application, which is already a good practice to reduce runoff and loss of nitrogen. Um, one study showed that dairy manure that was surface applied and not mixed into the soil had 13% of weed seeds germinate, while only 3% germinated when the manure was tilled into the soil. Wow. That's really interesting. And that kind of has to do with the depth at which weed seeds can germinate, right? I mean, so we know that uh, small seeded weeds really need to be in shallow soil to germinate the vast majority of the time and, and larger weed seeds uh, can be put in at uh, lower depths and still be able to germinate. So I'm guessing it has to do with a lot of that. Yeah, um, and when they're deeper in the ground, they um, by the time they come up, they're probably going to have a crop to deal with for competition, whereas mm -hmm. if they're on the surface, they've got, you know, they're off to the races right away. Yeah, they got first dibs yeah. and all that sunlight and water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And nutrients that you just put on there, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I heard kind of a side note here. There was a really interesting study. It was a, a weed science lab in Missouri that did this study. They were trying to figure out how much duck migration contributes to Palmer amaranth seed dispersion. 
And so they recruited a bunch of duck hunters, and they um, looked in the stomachs of these ducks and found pigweed seeds inside the stomachs of these ducks that had migrated across state lines. And from there, they were able to get some interesting estimations of how much ducks were actually contributing to the spread of Palmer amaranth seeds, which is very important in a lot of uh, states around the country, including Minnesota. We really don't want Palmer amaranth being spread around the state. So just, you know, a along the topic of, uh, of digestive systems and, and how these weed seeds can survive in digestive systems. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. I hadn't heard of that. And yeah, Palmer amaranth is certainly something we want to keep out of Minnesota, although, I mean, it's here, but if we can yeah. limit it spread, that would be great. So those darn ducks. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> what about diseases or insect pests? Um, when we're thinking about spreading manure, uh, should fruit or vegetable farmers be thinking about the diseases or insects that could be spread in manure, or is that not an issue? Um, yeah, plant, um, plant, animal, and human pathogens can all be, can all be carried by raw manure. Um, things like E. coli and salmonella, um, giardia, those can all be spread through manure. Um, and this is of special concern, of course, in food crops like fruit and vegetables. And I'm sure you've all heard about all the E. coli outbreaks in certain food items. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those cases can be traced back to manure. Um, in some cases, manure that accidentally ran into the field or manure that was applied. Um, and um, livestock have also gotten sick, sick from being on a pasture where manure was applied from other sick animals. Um, and for if for livestock producers, the best way to keep pathogens out of manure is to keep the animals healthy. So studies have shown that stressed, unhealthy livestock are more, more likely to excrete pathogens than healthy animals, even pathogens that aren't necessary, necessarily making that animal sick. So, you know, basic things like providing clean food and water, you know, keeping up on vaccinations, um, ventilation, fly and vermin control, all those things can really help. Um, Composting also kills the majority of pathogens in manure. Mm-hmm. Um, two days at at least 130 degrees will kill most of the pathogens. There's some, what are they, rotaviruses, I think, that that have not been shown to be able to be killed by composting, but those are, those are more rare um, and re- would require very high temperatures that you can't get in composting to kill. Um, UV light in drying also kills pathogens. So when you apply manure to the soil surface and it sits out in the sun, so that reduces pathogens. But I mean, I just told you to incorporate your manure into the soil, right? So <laughs> you know, sometimes you got to balance the good with the bad. Um, so the overall recommendation is to incorporate that manure, um, since flies and vermin could also pick up the pathogens um, and spread them with the manure if it's left on the surface. As far as um, as far as insects go, there hasn't been a lot of research into insect um, viability in raw manure versus compost in terms of the insects that are um, considered pests in crops. I know flies, there's been a lot of research into flies and um, composting once again reduces the amount of flies and um, flies really prefer to lay their eggs and larvae in um, raw manure rather than composted manure. Okay. All right. Well, this is all really interesting information. I think this is really good uh, for 
for our growers to think about um, if they're thinking about applying manure or if they're already applying manure. Um, maybe some farmers who have both livestock and vegetable crops. Um, I think this is really great information. So I'm just wondering as we wrap up here, is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Any, um, any good manure puns? I know that you are great at manure puns. <laughs> That's part of my job is to have yeah. manure puns, right? Yeah. Um, I don't have any puns, but I do have a manure joke. Okay. All right. I'll take it. All right. All right. You'll take what you can get. Okay. Um, so a little boy comes across this farmer who's got a truckload of cow manure. The boy asks him, what is, what's he going to do with all that cow poop? And the farmer tells the little boy, well, I'm taking it home to put on my strawberries. <laughs> and the little boy looks up at the farmer and says, I don't know where you come from, but where I come from, we put cream and sugar on our <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And to get more information on um, applying manure to fruit and vegetable crops or information on manure practices in general, we have a lot of information on the Extension website, right? And then um, you just wrote an article for the Fruit and Vegetable News for Manure Basics for Fruit and Vegetable Growers. So that is on our blog, um, which can also be found on the Extension website under Commercial Fruit and Vegetables. So thanks a lot, Chrissy. Thanks for having me.